Amen. Thank you to our worship team for leading us so well. We are in Ezra chapter 4 this morning as we continue our series called Rebuild. And today's topic is facing opposition. I'm amazed actually how a story from thousands of years ago, from a different time, a different place, a different point in redemptive history, I'm amazed how much this story is applicable to my own life and to our own time. And I trust that you will find that to be the case as well. Uh, This series is meant to revive our hearts with passion for God and to renew our minds with the plan of God. Last week, we found that the people of Israel, this remnant, uh, were sent back, were invited to go back from Babylon to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And Um, Several thousand of those people did. A small fraction of all the Jews who could have come, but a a number of them did come. And in chapter 3, we saw that the the temple began to be rebuilt. In fact, we read about this great noise that took place. If you see at the end of verse 12, or, or verse 11, excuse me, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Now that little phrase is actually foreshadowing. It's one of the neat ways that the writers of Scripture uh, use storytelling and the various components of storytelling to make the Word of God interesting for us. We see that. The the sound, that great noise, was heard far away. Then look at the very first verse of chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, they came. So we have chapter 3 ending with this great shout, this great noise, and then chapter 4 begins with the enemies of Israel having heard that shout and now beginning to oppose the work that was going on. First of all, I wonder if we recognize that we, as they did, live in a time of history, of God's redemptive history, where we, like they, have a job to do. Their specific job at that time, if you were a Jewish person, if you were one of God's people, your job at that time was to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Why? Because that's the city of God, because that's the place where God is worshipped, because ultimately the Messiah was going to come and stand in that very temple. So that was a key part of God's redemptive plan in that moment. For us, we're in a different part of God's redemptive plan. It's really illustrated by our discipleship path. Now, we are the building of God. We are the builders of God. We are the living stones of this house that is being built. The scripture says it's a spiritual house. And so our job is to follow Christ. Our job is to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Our job is to become part of this spiritual building. And our job is to look for others who've never trusted in Christ, who are separated from him and invite them to follow Jesus. That's our job. So just as they had this job to do, which was going to be opposed, we have a job to do, which is often opposed. And the two lessons I want us to learn from these Old Testament folks, number one, we need to learn to recognize opposition. When it comes to 
doing God's work and being God's people, we have to recognize opposition for what it is. And then, of course, we have to resist opposition. Now, in our day, opposition doesn't come from the Samaritan people as it did for these Jewish folks in Ezra chapter 4 and 5. Those people who had been resettled by the Assyrian Empire, as we read in these verses. Our opposition comes from three places, according to the New Testament. Three different enemies of our soul. And here's the first one, John 15, 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now, the, the word world is used in different ways in the Bible and in the New Testament and even Jesus himself. For example, he most famously in John 3 said that God so loved the world. He's not speaking there of a world that is our enemy or, or our, our world that, that God wants to destroy, but a world that God loves. But here he's speaking about the world in opposition to us, the world hating us. And so here's the reality is out there, there is a culture, a society, a world of people with a certain way of thinking and believing, with certain perspectives about God and God's plan and God's purpose and about God's people. That system that's out there, that culture that's out there is opposed to us and our faith and to the things that we want to accomplish and that God wants to accomplish. So God loves the world out there. He loves the people of the world. He sent his son for that world because of his love. And yet there's also this sense in which the world opposes us. I mentioned that verse earlier from Romans 12 about uh, how uh, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But first it says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the world. It's the idea here is the world is trying to press us into its mold. It's trying to make us in its image all the while Jesus wants to make us in his image. So the world is always exerting this pressure on us, trying to press us into the mold to shape us like it is. Our young people are facing enormous pressure in schools nowadays, that we would be forced into the world's way of thinking about sexuality and various such things. God says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this world that's out there is in opposition to us. And then we read in Galatians 5 about the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So a person who's a child of God has been baptized into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been placed within us or our lives are sealed by the Holy Spirit being within us and yet there's still this old person, this old human nature that's, that's always trying to bubble up from within. And so the Holy Spirit is in conflict with our nature as human beings. And that's a battle that we fight every day. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Satan is the great enemy of God's people and we'll be talking about him because so much of our opposition that we face as Christians today is very much under the work and, and at the hand of the devil who's seeking to oppose us. So let's begin by seeing how to recognize opposition and what does it look like and what does it do. 
So here's the first thing as we read the early verses of chapter 4. We find these enemies of Judah. They come to Zerubbabel, verse 2, and to the heads of the families, and they say, let us help you build, because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Then we find Zerubbabel and Joshua, they resist. They recognize this is not a genuine request to help. It's coming from the enemies of God's people. And so they resist that. And then in verse 4, we see how they continue their opposition in new ways. It says the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. So there's our first two things, actually. First of all, they wanted to discourage the people of God. Now, discouragement, hopefully we can fairly easily see in our English language, contains the word courage. So to discourage is to steal, to remove, to destroy someone's courage. So when it comes to being courageous to be the people of God and to obey God and do His work, Their desire was to discourage, to steal that courage and that resolve and that strength to press forward. Secondly, we find that they wanted to make the people afraid. Have you ever noticed how fear causes paralysis in our lives? Fear of failure, uh, fear of other people, what do people think of me, fear of circumstances. All of these fears have ways of paralyzing us. And so the enemies of Israel knew if they could sow fear among the Jewish people, make them afraid to go on building, make them think that if they build, there's going to be these fearful consequences, then they could stop the work. Notice none of this is in your face. It's, it's not uh, swords and spears kind of attacks. It's very subtle. It's undermining the people of God in very subtle ways. Read on in verse 5. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. This word means to break, literally to break. It's like that tool that you're using. It falls apart in your your hands, and now what am I going to do? I can't finish the job. They wanted to frustrate the people. They wanted to bring the work to an end. So... When all of those things didn't work, finally they write a letter. And this is after the reign of Cyrus now. Uh, So now the king of of Persia is a man named Xerxes. You'll see in verse 6, at the beginning of his reign, they lodge an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and they write a letter. So notice what they write in their letter, if you go down to uh, verse 11. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in trans Euphrates, the king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Think about that. Is that what they were doing? Were they restoring the walls and repairing the foundation of the walls? Were they rebuilding the city? Well, we know clearly from the book of Ezra and later Nehemiah that that's not at all what was happening. All that they had done so far was rebuild the altar and they had laid the foundation of one building and that was the temple of God. In other words, 
The means by which opposition came upon the people was a lie. They lied to King Artaxerxes. They said the Jewish people were doing something that they weren't doing. Now, later they're going to do that. They're going to do that under, uh, under the command and the decree of another king. But here it was lies that were lodged against the people of Israel to stop their work. Does that ring a bell for you? Someone has said that with every choice to sin, there is deception. I've come to find that in my own life, that when I've struggled with depression, when I've struggled with anxiety at times, in some cases, in many cases, behind those uh, difficulties and that emotional health struggle, often there is a lie. You're a failure. You're never going to make it. You'll never accomplish anything. Satan loves to use lies. You've never sinned without first being deceived to think, you deserve this. It's not that big a deal. Every time we fall into sin, every time we fall into discouragement, there are lies behind that that are being lobbed against us by the world, sometimes by our own flesh, and certainly by the devil. And what is his hope? We see what happens in this story. After the letter is written to the king, a letter comes back in return. And verse 23, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read uh, to uh, Rehum and Shimshay, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Here is the crucial thing about opposition, spiritual opposition. God has a plan for you. He wants, to, he wants to see you move forward and be transformed. He wants to see you follow Jesus. He wants to see you engaging in his work and in his redemptive plan. But opposition always leads to this. The purpose of our enemies is always this, spiritual paralysis. How many of you know who this man is? I don't know if you watched uh, movies in the 80s. Uh, once in a while when I was a kid, Friday night would be movie night. Which, and I know you young kids can't even envision, envision this, but movie night meant that we go down to the local uh, movie rental place, and the first thing you rent was the VCR, right? Nobody had a VCR. The ca- it was like the size of a casket, this big case, you know? You'd, You'd bring it home and uh, pull out the VCR and you'd rent a few movies, which for our family meant, uh, you know, Star Wars and Superman. This is Christopher Reeve. He played Superman in the original uh, movies that, that were made, I think one, two, three, and four, one too many probably. And after he was famous, and I don't know that he was actually in many other movies besides Superman, but in 1995 when he was famous as being Superman, he fell off a horse and broke his neck. And thereafter, if you ever saw a story about Christopher Reeve, this is what you'd see. This man who'd worn the S on his chest, who could uh, stop a speeding bullet and, and all of those things, now was a quadriplegic. Could scarcely move his head side to side, hooked up with hoses and breathing apparatus and all these various things, paralyzed. I find that a really stark picture, and 
when I think about how Satan and my flesh and the world have tried to grind my spiritual progress to a halt, how, how sad it is that for some of us who profess to know Jesus, if we could see ourselves and if others could see us for who we really are in our spiritual condition, this is what we'd see. Paralysis. And just think back to that discipleship path, that picture that we've been showing over and over where we've got Jesus out front and he's calling us to follow and to, to grow in our faith and to be transformed. And so we can just ask ourselves the question, is that true of me? Am I marching forward? Am I relentless in my progress to follow Jesus? Am I allowing him to do his work in me to change me? Or that idea that all of us are responsible as believers to help other believers to grow. Am I serving God and his church? Am I using a spiritual gift to minister to other believers and to come alongside them and to encourage them to follow Jesus as well? And then think about that left side of the discipleship path, that dark side where there's people still separated from Jesus and God invites us to be the ones who give that message and shine that light and, and, and be the ones to tell others about Jesus and invite them to follow. But are we paralyzed? Are we really following Jesus? If this is our spiritual condition, then the reality is that we have fallen prey to the opposition of the world and the flesh and the devil. And God would say to us today, it's time to rebuild. It's time to rebuild. And that's what happens in chapter 5. If you look at verse 1, you might recognize these names. Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. doesn't really give us any description about what that prophecy was. What were they saying? But verse 2 says, Zerubbabel and Joshua set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. The paralysis of the work at the temple lasted about a decade, 10 years of zero progress. What I find sad is that there was no pushback. The enemies came and had the letter and said, you've got to stop. And they stopped. There, there, was, there was no letter writing. There, there was no debating. There was, no, there was nothing. Just paralysis, the work stops until God sends these two prophets. We had seen some feistiness earlier in chapter 4 when these enemies of Israel came and subtly said, hey, we'll help you build. But in verse 3, we had Zerubbabel and Joshua and the heads of the family saying, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. They recognized that their false motives they said, we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's the first thing when it comes to resisting opposition. We've got to be feisty about this. I don't know. Is that a good word to use? I don't know if that's a very manly word. It's the only one I could think of. I spelt it F-I-E, and that got the red line, so I had to figure out, no, it's E-I. Be feisty. Uh, too many of us have no pushback. We're, we're not in the battle and when Satan presses us down, we don't push back. And when our flesh is rising up within us, we don't fight back. And the world tells us what we should be, and we don't 
fight back. There's a feistiness that's required in the Christian life. That's why Paul could say when he talked about the armor of God that we should be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We don't, we don't be pushovers here. So be feisty. Have you seen this movie, Facing the Giants? Kind of a low-budget Christian movie from about 15 or 20 years ago, but a pretty powerful movie. This guy on the left is the football coach, and he's, he's out of practice, and he's trying to show his guys that they, they shouldn't just assume they're going to lose every game, that they can, with God's help, they can do more than they think they can do. And so he gets this big lineman down on the ground um, to do the death crawl. You can see he's got his toes on the ground, he's got his hands on the ground. That's the death crawl. You cannot drop your knee to the ground. In the meantime, you've got one of your, co, uh, your teammates is on your back, holding on to your jersey, just providing weight. And then he blindfolds the guy. Because everyone thought, well, the death crawl, I mean, the most you're ever going to do is 10 yards. So he puts a blindfold on this lineman. And he's getting right in his ear, and he even gets down on the grass, and he says to this guy, don't quit on me. Don't quit. By the end of the movie, I don't think it's realistic, but the guy goes the whole length of the field doing the death crawl. It's pretty powerful. The point I'm making here is that we can be feisty. Yeah, God is the one who's our strength, but, but sometimes it's our own will that unlocks the door for God's strength to work in us and through us. So there's this feistiness that's required that melted away when this letter came and Zerubbabel and Joshua didn't even push back, didn't send a letter, didn't try to say, hey, Cyrus gave us permission to do this. They just melted away. That was exactly what the enemies wanted. In fact, that word um, discourage kind of carries that meaning in the Hebrew language to kind of melt away. And that's what happened. So here's the first thing. To resist opposition, we've got to find some feistiness in our soul. Secondly, we need to remember who's in charge. We'd seen this in chapter 4 at this period of feistiness when Zerubbabel and Joshua say, you have no part with us, this is verse 3, in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel. Notice, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now he's appealing here to the human king. He's saying, we have permission. You cannot stop us because the ruler of this whole empire told us we could do this and they probably had written evidence of that they, they fell back on authority that's what happens later after this decade of paralysis Haggai and Zechariah come along and they prophesy to the Jews it says that they prophesied verse 1 of chapter 5 in the name of the God of Israel notice who was over them bringing them back to that true authority far higher than Cyrus or Darius, or Xerxes, was the authority of God, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who had rescued them from Egypt and made them his own. And still, even after the exile and all of these troubles, was still the God who was over them. Then you can see it later. What happens is a second letter is written to another king, and they report on what the Jewish people said to them in their opposition to the building. Notice verse 11. This is what the Jews had said. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. 
See, what they're appealing to here is the authority, the highest authority, and that was the authority of God himself. There's actually a beautiful verse in the New Testament that we should fall back on again and again. A verse that uh, was given when Jesus was giving his disciples and us our marching orders to to live out that discipleship path and to to be followers of Jesus. And I always wondered, why why did he have to say this? Why would he say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Why? Because he knew that there would be 2,000 years of opposition to Christianity and to his people. There would be the world and the flesh and the devil forever pressing in and saying, stop, stop. And so he would remind us that all authority on heaven and in heaven and earth has been given to me. So when he says go and make disciples, when we stop doing it, we're disobeying. And if we've been made afraid or discouraged or the world has said you can't, we remember that Jesus said you can and you will. Number three, to resist opposition, we need to hear truth. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, we see the preaching, the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah is in place. It is wrong for us to think that uh, the Old Testament prophets were primarily uh, future tellers. That's sadly the way we tend to think of the Old Testament prophets, primarily as foretelling the future. Well, they did that, some of them did that, not all of them did that, because that wasn't their primary work. Their primary work was to simply be preachers for God, to be spokesmen for God to his people. So in Haggai chapter 1, Haggai is just two chapters at the end of the Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament, and we actually get to read. You can see the connection between these two books. Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. Haggai's ministry wasn't to declare some future event. It was to be a kick in the butt, to get the people of God moving again, to get them back onto God's agenda, and to encourage them that God was with them. Hear truth. That's one of the tremendous privileges that I have as a preacher of God, anyone who preaches God's word. Or if you're a Sunday school teacher or someone who teaches youth, this is a tremendous privilege of us that we get to be the ones who impart truth, who speak prophetically for God to others. The question for us is, do we hear? Are our ears open to the truth of God's word? Do we take it in in our own time? And do we respond? It's one thing to hear, it's another thing to hear. My wife is slowly teaching me that. There's times when I hear her talking, but she's not so sure that I actually hear her talking. And that is so true for us. Thanks, Wayne, I see you. I see you consoling Peg there and makes me feel better about myself. It can be so true of us in a spiritual realm. We hear and sing the words of these great songs, but are they really reaching our hearts? God has given us his word. He's given us people who teach and declare his word. 
Do we listen? To resist opposition, we need leaders. Lead and be led. This is the beauty of what we see now in verse 2. Even though there had been 10 years of failure, failed leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was like the kind of the governor. He wasn't a king. He's kind of like the governor of these Jewish people. And then Joshua was the high priest. And after 10 years of failed leadership, they took up their responsibility again and they began to lead the people of God. And their leadership wasn't to get all the people together and say, now you should go and do this. Their leadership was, we will do this. Come join us. That's what true and godly leadership is. There are some of us in this room who are leaders. In fact, many of us. If you are a Christian parent, you are a leader. And we need to lead our children well. There's people in this room who are church elders. We need to lead well. There's people in this room who have the privilege of being a youth leader. We need to lead those youth well. That means being courageous. But there's also a truth, a reality, that all of us have to be willing to be led You can't be a Christian unless you agree to follow Jesus. And what the New Testament teaches us is to find people in our lives who are passionately following Jesus and follow in their example. Why? So that the whole church is moving towards Christ and being transformed and being built up. We need to lead and be led. In the ways that God has made us leaders, we need to rise up and lead. And in in places where God has put Christian spiritual leaders over us, we need to be willing to be led. I wonder uh, how much God has exposed in our own lives through various means, our unwillingness to yield to the leadership of another. One of my favorite stories from history is the story of Joshua Chamberlain. I asked in the first service, does anyone know about the story of Little Round Top from the American Civil War. One person put their hand halfway up. Does anyone know about the story of Little Round Top? Anyone? Anyone, anyone want to make me feel not quite so weird that I know about this? All right, I guess I'm just weird. The story of uh, the Battle of Little Round Top took place in Gettysburg. Probably a lot of you have heard of that, even if you don't know anything about the Civil War. You've probably heard about the Battle of Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg was uh, uh, one of the biggest, probably the biggest battle in the American Civil War, many, many casualties. It was a battle in which the Confederates almost overwhelmed the Union Army. And some would say this Battle of Little Round Top was the key point at which the Confederate assault was repelled. And what happened was the Union soldiers were up on this hill known as Little Round Top. And again and again, waves of Confederate regiments were rushing up that hill and shooting and trying to overtake that hill until finally Joshua Chamberlain's regiment was virtually out of ammunition. They had no ammunition left. They could see the Confederates forming for another assault and they, they had been told, you cannot relinquish this position. You have to hold this position at all costs. So Joshua Chamberlain, who was a school teacher, pulled out a sword and shouted the command, fix bayonets. You know what that means? It means we're not shooting anymore. Now we're going to -to hand-to-hand combat. So his men put the bayonets on the ends of their rifles, and he apparently, according to this artwork, charged down ahead into a, a hail of gunfire with his sword. 
and uh, asked that his men would follow him. Well, the story of history is that they did. And I don't know what's crazier, Joshua Chamberlain taking a sword and chasing after guys with guns, or all of his men saying, we'll go with you. Both were crazy in the face of that opposition, but they were victorious. We need these kinds of people in the church today to lead and be led. And one last thing is that we need to trust in God's presence. As we face opposition, we remember not only that God is in control, that he's in the authority overall, but notice verse 5, the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply received. Now we see that God was present, and they were seeing that God was present. And the outcome of chapter 5 is so different. There was another letter written in chapter 5. This time it was an honest and truthful letter. And this time when it was received by the king of Persia, they checked in the records. They found that Cyrus had decreed that the city of Jerusalem, uh, the temple of God, could be rebuilt. And so the outcome was favorable. Uh, I wonder if we remember that God is present. In our discouragement, in our frustration, When we feel the weight of opposition against us, God wants us to know that he's present. And so Jesus didn't just say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He also said at the end of the Great Commission, again should be Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. So where do we stand this morning? Do we stand? Are we standing on our spiritual feet? Are we ready to move forward as the people of God? Are we willing to participate in his redemptive story? Are we ready to follow hard after Jesus to be transformed into his likeness? Are we ready to come alongside others and say, follow Jesus with me? Are we willing to go find the lost and the separated and invite them in? This is our great, great privilege today. If we aren't engaged in those things, then we have fallen prey to the opposition of our enemy. And we need to hear God saying this morning, rise up and build, follow, and obey. Let's sing in closing, and then I will come again and pray. Lord, now you're building a house that's so much bigger, so much greater. It's your church. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have allowed paralysis to set in. Would you bring us repentance this morning, if that's been true of us? Would you build a resolve in us, a feistiness to fight back and to, to press forward in spite of frustration and discouragement and fear? Help us to see that by your authority and by your presence, by your word, we can rise up and, and build. So would you make this true of us, Lord, today and in the week ahead. May we live all for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here.